Let's open up our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 7. If you'd like, just for a moment, let's look together at chapter 6 and just scan that. Been preaching a series in Genesis, as you might know. I think I've brought a sermon or a few here. Preaching a series in Genesis and Heritage, and here I come in the middle of the series and bring you a sermon from it. Let's get a little bit of context. You'll see in chapter 6, toward the beginning of the chapter, that The days before the flood are not good. They're very dark. Something that's going on is intermarriage. And as you go through the chapter also, you'll notice that there is violence that's filling the earth. Then in verses 5, 6, and 7, you read of, in verse 5, God's evaluation of things. And verse 7, he announces that he's going to send the flood. He's going to send destruction, and then significantly, verse 8, Noah is the exception of God's grace, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then as you go on in the chapter, really everything centers around verse 18. God says, but with thee, and he's talking to Noah, with thee will I establish my covenant, thou shalt come into the ark, and so on. God establishes his relationship of friendship, with Noah and with his seed. And as you learn in chapter 9, God establishes his covenant with the creation too. And God is speaking to Noah in the latter half of chapter 6 and preparations are made for the flood. So now we come to Genesis chapter 7 and we'll read that chapter. The entirety of it is our text and this is the event of the flood. This is God's word. The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark, because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls, and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, The seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. 
And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark Two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly above the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. Thus far, we read the word of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, before we get into what Noah was told to do before the flood came and the flood itself, just one brief thing. And that is that, as I'm sure you're well aware, there are many unbelieving denials of the flood. Those have been around for quite a long time, but you'll hear attack left and right today, denying the flood on one level or another. There are some denials that take the form of just simply contradicting everything that the scripture says about the historical event. And those who in their unbelief say it simply didn't happen and this is all a myth, none of it is true. But there are also denials of the flood that take the form of Mixing scripture in with the denial. We talk to our kids before they go to college. That's the most dangerous kind of thing because you mix the Bible in to some degree or another with it. But whether you have a flat-out denial or denials that try to mix in scripture with them, 
I'm not going to get into all the different ways that the flood is denied, but just to say this, we reject and we must reject 100% without any reservation, any denial of the flood. Truth of the matter is, everything the Bible says here is truth. It really did happen. It's fact. It's history. Faith is the gift of God, earned by Jesus Christ at the cross, given to us by the Holy Spirit. Faith of the elect child of God says, I believe every jot and tittle of what Scripture says about this event of long ago. It happened. It's fact. The word says it, I believe it. If I took even a little child that was just beginning to read and said, why don't you sit down with your Bible right there and and why don't you read Genesis 7 for me? And after that little child gets done reading, I would ask him or her, do you think that really happened? When you read that in the Bible, did it read like Real history? Do you think those are facts? That child would say without any doubt, of course it is. As you read it, it's clearly historical narrative. And then when you go to the New Testament, there are many different passages that refer to the flood and bear out that same fact. This is real history. And as we're going to hear toward the end of the sermon, also the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaks about the flood. Are we going to challenge the Lord himself? This is real history. So that's our approach, of course, in this evening as well. Let's hear about this under the theme, the flood, the flood. Let's notice this under two points. First of all, the event, and then secondly, we'll look at the significance. The event and the significance. Well, time is ticking down, and it's not long at all at this point before God is going to send the great deluge of water. In fact, when God gives, toward the beginning of the chapter, instructions to Noah, this is given seven days before the waters are sent. That's clear from verse 4 of our text where God says for yet seven days and I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights and then again verse 10 and it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth so it's seven days and the Lord has some things that he says to Noah And one of them is this, Noah, you and your family must get on this vessel. That's verse 1. The Lord said unto Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark. And then if you go to verse 7, it gets a little more specific about who is to go on the ark. Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. And then verse 13 gets even more specific. 
In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. So Noah, his three sons, his wife, and his three daughters-in-law. Now, there's something to that. That's historical fact, of course, that he and his household are to get on the ark, but there's something to that. You have to see this in light of God's promise in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, of course, is after the flood takes place, but God promises that he will establish his covenant with Noah and with Noah's seed. That seed is not all the physical descendants that will ever come among Noah's children. That seed is only the elect among his descendants, those who belong to Jesus Christ. But the point is that God says, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and with your seed. Well, if Noah is the only one that gets on the boat, then what of God's covenant? And what of his promise? That covenant does not continue, and his promise falls flat on the ground, and especially the seed, Jesus Christ, does not come. And so you have to see in the light of God's covenant that it's not only Noah, but also his household that comes on the ark. God gives instruction not only in that regard, you and your family go on the boat, but also Noah is to receive the animals into that vessel that's verse 2 of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens the male and his female you're to take the clean animals by sevens and what i take that to mean is seven male female pairs male female male female male female and so on seven times, of each clean animal. And then, toward the end of verse 2, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, and the way I take that is similar, of the unclean beasts, each of them, there are two male-female pairs. So the animals are to get on. And then, verse 3 elaborates on that a little bit, starts talking about the birds of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the earth. And then verse 8, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and everything that creepeth upon the earth. And then verse 9, and I take verse 9 to indicate how they are to file onto the ark. It says, there went in two and two, Unto Noah, male-female pair, male-female pair, two by two is how they're actually then going unto the ark. And then you see in the text verses 14 and 15 as well, which talk about these animals coming on. How do we understand the animals getting on the ark like that? Is it that Noah went out into the length and breadth of the creation 
found all these specific animals in their female male pairs, and then he physically collected and gathered them up, and he brought them to the ark, and he received them in. Is that how it went? The answer to that question is no. The animals came in that specific order and way to Noah, who was already on the ark, and he simply received them into the vessel. The proof for that is verse 20 of chapter 6. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. In other words, Noah, these animals are going to come to you. That just opens up more questions, of course. How do animals know to come in their pairs and clean animals by sevens, unclean by twos, to that ark at this time? And the only answer to that is because God directed them to come in this specific way at this time and to the ark to be received unto that boat by Noah. That's the only explanation. God directed and guided them. And if someone challenges that, then the answer to that is this whole thing is a wonder. We're going to come to that about the flood itself. This is one big wonder of God and even this whole matter of the creatures coming also belongs to that wonder. Faith believes it. That too, there's something to it. Not just Noah and his family are to get on, but there are to be animals on that ark as well. And part of that, one reason for that, of course, is that there has to be creatures on the earth after the flood. This isn't the end of history. There's going to be in a certain sense, a new world, and that new world has to be inhabited with animals, and that's why they have to be brought on to be kept alive. But the deeper reason that the animal world, the creation, must also be on the ark is that God established his covenant not just with Noah and his seed, but he established his covenant with the creation too. That's not something we think of very often, but Jesus Christ died for his elect. He also died for the creation. And we say that the covenant is cosmic. That means it embraces and includes also the creation. If you look at Genesis 9, that's made very clear there. Genesis 9, verse 9 and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you. And so they too must be on the ark. Time is ticking down. And now it's all the way down. And it's time for the flood to come. The seven days are over. And the word of God tells us precisely as with a calendar when the flood 
is sent by the Lord. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Why such specific dating of when this occurs? Well, of the Lord is giving us facts and history once again, so there's something to that. This is when it happened. There's something more. When we and our families have a wedding ceremony or there is a marriage anniversary or a birthday party or a graduation, what is one of the first things that we do when we're thinking about that? We go to our calendar and we mark it down. This is when so-and-so is getting married. This is our anniversary. This is the birthday party or the graduation. And we do that on our calendars because it's something so important to us. The Lord, as it were, marks it on the calendar because what we have here is something of tremendous importance and always to be remembered. I'd like to describe the flood for you using three words starting with the letter D. The first D word to describe the flood is the details of it, some details about the flood. Before we plunge into this, something that we ought to keep in mind is that the world we live in right now is not the same as the world that existed before the flood. And I say that because there are some who say, well, let's look at the world we live in now and let's research and observe things and really study everything around us so that we can understand what happened back then at, at the time of the flood. But the fact is, you can't research and observe and look at the world now to try to understand what happened then because in many different ways, they're two different worlds. That's what Second Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 tell us, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The world that then was, that world perished. And we live in many respects in a new world, so you can't look at the one we live in and try to figure out what happened at the time of the flood. Well, the verse 6 of our text tells us that it was indeed a flood. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. The word flood means deluge. Rapidly flowing, quickly rising, swelling water of such a character that it's able to pick things up and rapidly carry them away. It's a deluge of water. Other parts of the text fill that out for us. What exactly, what sort of deluge this was. What it, what it meant that you have such violently moving and quickly swelling water. Verse 17 
And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. So during this 40-day period, we'll come to that in a little bit, the waters increase or they multiply and they just lift up that wooden vessel above the surface of the earth. Then verse 18, and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth and the ark went upon the face of the waters. The waters prevailed. How many times in the Old Testament don't you read something like, and the children of Israel prevailed over their enemies. And you understand by that, they just overwhelmed their enemies. They had a complete victory over them. And now the waters have, as it were, a complete victory over, and they totally overwhelm all the creatures and the men that are outside the ark. The waters are increasing greatly, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And now verse 19 and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. The original language here for the Old Testament is Hebrew. And when Hebrew wants, as it were, to underline and italicize something, really emphasize it, what the Hebrew does is it uses the same word two times in a row. And literally it says here, the waters prevailed, exceedingly, exceedingly. So there is some force and some movement going on here. In fact, the high hills under the entirety of heaven, so all the high hills on the whole earth are covered with water. And then verse 20, it just keeps on going. 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered it's always hard to find equivalents to cubits a little bit, but 15 cubits is roughly the same as 22 feet. So you can imagine, children, that the highest mountains on earth, the water is 22 feet above those mountain peaks, yeah. So it's not only rapidly moving, but it's swelling and it's deep. Where is all this water coming from? Well, part of the answer to that is it's coming from above to the earth. Verse 4 gives us the simple fact of rain. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now in the Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota region that we live in, it's pretty common, even during the fall, to have a pop-up shower, maybe a thunderstorm, and the rain sort of mists down, sometimes even a downpour, we would say. This is no mist. This is no downpour. This is a torrential rain, the likes of which we have probably never seen in our own lifetimes. It is pouring down in streams from heaven. And what is possibly a second source of water from up above is given us in verse 11. Beside those torrential rains, we're told 
all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Now this, and the windows of heaven were open. Very windows of heaven open and water coming down in that way too. In order to understand what that means, you have to go back to the first day of creation. Children will know that God made the heaven and the earth on that first day. And you can imagine that it was a very watery place. You have water on the surface of the earth and you have water in some form scattered throughout the air or the heavens. But the water on the surface of the earth and the water throughout the air, it didn't have any form to it. There was no shape. It was all mixed through each other. And then on the second day, God made the firmament, which means he took that water that was in the air and he, as it were, stretched it into a thin sheet. He stretched that water out. He gave it shape and form. And by giving shape and form, stretching that water into a sheet, he separated the water in the heavens from the water on the surface of the earth. So now you have this firmament, this atmosphere. And what we gather here is that there's a huge reservoir in those days of water in the heavens. And it's now this gigantic reservoir of water that opens up and comes as so many waterfalls down upon the earth. Windows of heaven were opened. And even if you and I have experienced extremely heavy rains, we have never in our life witnessed the windows of heaven opening up like that. And it's not just coming from above. It's coming from below, too. Verse 11. All the fountains of the great deep broken up. The deep there refers to, likely, the bottom of the ocean and what lies below the bottom of the ocean. And the deep may also very well refer to the crust of the dry land, the earth, and what lies below that crust of the earth. And the fountains of the great deep then would be these great springs or fountains or reservoirs of water beneath the ocean floor and quite possibly beneath the crust of the earth. And now these fountains burst. They just break forth. And now just imagine those reservoirs beneath the ocean floor, when they break and the water comes rushing from the sea bottom up through the depths of the sea, what that would result in. You have tsunamis, tidal waves. I imagine that the surface of the earth was characterized by these huge waves sweeping over it all the time. The fountains of the great deep break forth. And then, when you consider that both of these are happening at the same time, it's coming from here and it's coming from there, so that literally there is water coming from everywhere, resulting in a deluge, the flood. That's the first D 
concerning the flood, the details of it. Second D word is the duration of it. We're told in verse 4, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then verse 17 is similar. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth. That doesn't mean that the water itself was on the earth for only 40 days and 40 nights. The water was there a lot longer than that. But it does mean that it's actively and violently coming from here and here for 40 days and 40 nights. That's the duration. That's not just an interesting fact. But that tells you just how violent this truly was. Probably if you looked at statistics of storms in our area, then you would find that they last for maybe 10 minutes, half hour, hour. It's rare for a storm system to hang around for a day. 40 days and 40 nights it's coming from above and coming from below. That is quite an event. Something that we can't even comprehend. When I read in books that it may have been the land was all one and that the flood was responsible for breaking up that land into the continents that we have today, and when I read some Christian scientists who say that the earth was responsible for tilting the earth on its axis and even possibly carving something like the Grand Canyon out. I believe those things because this is a tremendous event. Details of the flood, duration of the flood, and the third D word with respect to it is the destruction of it. Do I even need to read all the verses throughout the text that emphasize how completely destructive this was? Just a sampling, verse 4. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And then verse 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. It simply was not survivable. Anything outside that ark was destroyed. And so long as we're on this subject of destruction, keep in mind that this is a worldwide flood. There's no room for debate on this matter. There are some just mentioned one of the denials of the flood. There are some who say this was a localized event, and maybe they thought it was worldwide because it was only in the place where humans live, but it, it was just one part of the earth. But that's a denial of the flood. The truth is it was global. And the proof for that is verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered all the high hills under the whole of heaven talking about the globe were covered the 
flood was worldwide. After you hear a description of it, all you can do, believer, is stand back with amazement and say, this is clearly a wonder of God. Something that's going to be laughed at, scorned, mocked, going to be seen as backward and foolish. There are people that actually believe this yet. But faith says it happened. Thanks, Lord, for the precious gift of faith. Well, that's all nice, even interesting. But this isn't just about history. As factual and as interesting and colorful as it is, There's real and there's deep significance to this flood that God sent. First of all, the significance of the flood is that we see here the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Won't dwell here too long, but just to note that God visits the totally depraved and wicked race with his wrath. You remember what we just looked at before the reading of Scripture? Genesis 6, things are not good. Things are dark. Sin is abounding. The cup of iniquity is rapidly filling up. And God visits that wickedness with fierce anger. This flood is the operation of God's power and his wrath. He destroys. And that's why... The text emphasizes the severity of it, not just so that we would walk away from the sermon tonight and say, wow, what an event that was. That was quite something that God sent. But so that we might leave the sermon tonight impressed with how hot God's displeasure with sin really is, that it just absolutely destroys anything that has breath and life outside of that ark. God hates sin, and he severely judges it. Second significance of the flood is that we see here the salvation of God's church. The salvation of God's church. There is a sense in which Noah and his family were saved in the ark from the floodwaters of God's wrath. He saved in the ark from the floodwaters of God's wrath. There's a sense in which that's true. You have to remember that God sent this great deluge and he did that in his destructive judgment. Noah and his family absolutely deserve to be visited with that same destructive judgment. But God was gracious to Noah. God saved him and his household inside the ark from the floodwaters of his wrath from being destroyed. And that's emphasized in the text too in verse 16. And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God commanded him. And now this, and the Lord shut him in. 
That's one of those phrases that you just easily read over and don't take much notice of. But the Lord shut Noah and his family in. And that's not just saying he shut the door before the flood came, although that was true. But in the sense that he's going to keep the occupants in this vessel safe. The Lord shut him in as if to say, the Lord has his almighty arms wrapped around this boat. He will keep it and he will preserve and keep safe these people inside and the creatures from the destructive waters of the flood. You understand this ark, which by the way was probably just a big rectangular wooden vessel. This thing wouldn't survive minutes and certainly not hours in these sort of conditions. The Lord had his arms around it and kept them safe. And the picture here, beloved, is that we are saved from the waves of God's wrath, which you and I deserve too. Jesus Christ came under the tsunamis and tidal waves and torrential waves of the wrath of God for our sins. He took our place. He was our substitute so that you and I never have to know those waves of his wrath. Christ took our place. And wonder of wonders is that God himself is the one who provided that refuge in his son from his own wrath. There's safety, salvation in Christ alone. As we said, there is a sense here when we're talking about the flood and salvation in which Noah and his family were saved in the ark from the floodwaters of God's wrath. But there's also a sense in which Noah and his family were saved by the waters of the flood. And this one perhaps receives even the emphasis in Scripture. They are saved by the waters of the flood. If you'd like, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Very, very significant passage. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And you might not expect to read it that way they were saved by water. Remember, the situation in the world at this time is a desperate situation. Things are incredibly wicked, going downhill extremely fast, the cup of iniquity rapidly filling up. There's 
intermarriage, there's violence filling the earth, you name it. There's one exception in these last years. Noah and his family. That's the church. There's a very real threat that the world and wicked society, how many people? Swallows up Noah and his family, swallows up the church. We know, of course, that did not happen and would not happen in God's plan, but there's that threat. Swallow up the church. That's what they threaten to do, that is. What does God do? He sends the flood, and by the waters of that flood, he lifts Noah and his household up and away from that wicked world. To put it differently, but the same idea, by the waters of the flood, he separates his church from that wicked world from being swallowed up by it. That's what 1 Peter means when it says that these souls were saved by water. This is a theme in Scripture that you encounter time and again. So important is this theme that if you don't understand it, or I, then we don't understand the Bible itself. And the theme is salvation through judgment. In this case, in this part of Old Testament history, the judgment is the flood and it destroys, wipes out that wicked world. And it's through that very judgment of the flood that God saves his church from being destroyed. He preserves his church. Salvation through judgment. No one his family saved by the waters of the flood. And there, too, is a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The flood of Christ's blood lifts us up and away from our own sin and from the wicked world of which we are a part by nature. The flood of Christ's blood separates us from, delivers us from sin and the world. And that very same flood of the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of that blood preserves us even as we live in the midst of the world. We don't live on another planet. That's not what it means that we're delivered from the world. We don't start a, our own community. We live in the world, although we are no longer of it. But as we live in the world, by the flood of that blood, we are preserved from being swallowed up. It's in that sense that the water of the flood is a picture of what we call the doctrine of spiritual baptism. That's why I mention that because that too comes out in 1 Peter 3. Now verse 21, the very next verse. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as the water of the flood lifted Noah and his family up and away and delivered them from the world, so also Christ's blood lifts us up and away, delivers us from the world and sin. That's the doctrine of spiritual baptism. 
similar to the flood, also our sacrament of water baptism is a picture of spiritual baptism. And what is emphasized, beloved, in all this salvation of the church is God's covenant. God establishes his covenant with Noah and he maintains and he keeps that covenant. Doesn't that just shine in this history? God has taken Noah graciously into a relationship of friendship with himself and Jesus Christ by those very waters of the flood. He destroys the world and he thus saves Noah. What is that? God is maintaining his covenant. And that's not something I plop on the text as a sort of add-on, not finding it anywhere in the text. It's all over. The number seven is the number of God's covenant. Ah, there's part of the significance of seven male-female pairs having to get on the ark. And there's the significance of God giving Noah those instructions seven days before the flood. And if you go into the next chapter after our text, more sevens, covenant, 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 because what this is, this flood, is a covenant wonder of grace. And very beautiful, therefore. Significance of flood, number one, it's judgment. Number two, it's salvation of the church. And number three, this flood foreshadows the end. When Jesus Christ comes again and fire burns, that's not something we just add on either with no proof, but that's the consistent testimony of Scripture that the flood points ahead to the last day of history when Jesus comes the second time. One of those places is Matthew chapter 24. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 24, starting at verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall be two in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. There are, of course, differences between these two events. One obvious one that the children could even come up with is that the one that's already happened was water. The one to happen will be fire. Another difference is that back then, when the flood happened, that was not the end of history but when Jesus comes again, that will be the end of history. There will be no more days after that. But for all the differences, there are similarities between the two. Both days, Jesus says, will be preceded by eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. 
They say, seems pretty harmless to me. But what is so wicked about what was going on before the days of the, in the days before the flood is that they're eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage without any thoughts of God. That was the evil thing. Like we heard this morning, earthly-mindedness, they were, they were absorbed with the things of this earth and therefore wicked what they were doing. They carried on in those activities, willingly ignorant of the flood that was coming and even scoffing at it. And then you say, sounds an awful lot like United States society in 2023. Eating, drinking, pile high my table, go to my favorite restaurant, marrying, giving in marriage, going to the sports game, doing this and doing that, just normal, everyday, weekly life perhaps. But what the wicked thing of it and what the world is rushing on headlong is there's no thoughts of God in it. They're absorbed, they're drunk with the things of this earth. Willingly ignorant that there's fire coming and even laugh at it. Both days are preceded by those things and another similarity is that both events are sudden, severe judgment that will overtake the wicked. And I say to you, congregation, as I say to myself, how extremely important that we take to heart the command of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24. I didn't read it, but I will now. It comes right after the verses I already read. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. You know the signs of his coming. You see them. He is coming. But the specific time frame, you don't know that. Watch. And within this context, what Jesus means is, and this is his word to us, don't be sleepy spiritually. Don't be consumed with the things of this earth And even though you're going to eat and you're drink and you're going to marry and given in marriage and you're going to date, go to games and all the rest, nothing wrong with those things in themselves. We must not become absorbed with these things. Don't be sleepy. But watch. Be in prayer. Be in prayer on your knees in these last and evil days. Be in the word of God. Drink this word richly as families, as individuals. To watch means to be an active member in Dune Protestant Reformed Church, being diligent in the kingdom of God and giving myself for his people in so many ways. And watch means observe the signs of his coming. So it's not just sitting in front of the television and watching the news, but seeing these events and hearing footsteps and not just looking at the catastrophes in the creation and the things going on in the church, but hearing footsteps. Christ is coming. Watch. Sometimes the word of God 
takes us by the collar and pulls us in and shakes us a little bit. And that's good for you and it's good for me too. 2 Peter 3 verse 11 is one of those verses. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. There's fire coming. It's all going to melt. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What kind of people ought we to be seeing as that day is coming? How urgent is the call tonight? Repent of your sins and trust, trust in Jesus Christ in whom alone is the refuge from the wrath to come. For the believer, it's not a fearful day, judgment day. Because the one who's coming upon the clouds that day is my Savior. Who took the nails for me. In whose blood there's a shelter from all the stormy blast. Amen. Father in heaven, knit thy word to our hearts, that then it may be richly applied to us, to our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.